The title of this morning's message is Oneness with Christ, Seeing the Truth of Who I Am. Now, the last time I ministered, I ministered on vision, about using our physical eyes to help us with our heart, to get our heart and our eyes in agreement and apprehending the visions and dreams that God has for us. Well, today I want to talk to you about really the eyes of your heart, again, but not using our physical eyes, using our spiritual eyes. Last week at school, we have chapel time at school. One of the things we do during chapel time is everyone is allowed to express what they believe they're hearing the Lord say. And so David, one of the facilitators, was prophesying, saying, God has given everybody here a word. Everybody. And I just feel like in my spirit right now, God's also saying that today. God's given everybody here a word. It's not necessarily going to come out of my mouth, but God has given everybody here a word. What he said that day to me was this. You underestimate your oneness with Christ. If you understood your oneness with Christ, nothing would be impossible to you. You would live in my rest, and you'd be upheld by my strength. When we were all done, Olga, David's wife, said, think on that this week. Since God used my mouth to say it, I thought, I should probably think on that this week. (laughs) So I began thinking on that. How we see ourselves is really important to how well we walk in victory. How we see ourselves is really important in how well we walk in victory. In fact, our vision boards won't really help us very much. We don't see ourselves right first. We have to see ourselves correctly in order to apprehend what God is giving to us through Christ. The way our Father sees us is reality. The way our Father sees us is what is real. Not how I see me. How my Father sees me is truth. It's real and it's true. And it's important that I walk in agreement with what's real and what's true. Now, this is really important because we live out of our heart. As a man thinks in his heart, he is. How we see ourselves is how our life plays out. Everything goes through our heart. See, when I got born again, I got a brand new spirit. Brand new. Baby butt spanking new. (laughs) Okay. And it gave me a new heart. It says in Jeremiah that in the new covenant, he will give us a new spirit and a new heart. Where exactly is this new heart? Because my heart that I'm aware of isn't always in alignment with the truth. You see, we have a spiritual heart and we have a heart of flesh. You know how they make the little red hearts, there's like a half and a half? That's kind of like how God created us. Half of our heart is completely aware of God. We're wall-to-wall Holy Ghost. We are crammed full of God. Now, when we get filled with the Spirit, what part of it gets filled? If my spirit man is completely new and filled with the Holy Spirit, what part of me gets filled with the Holy Spirit? My soul. Throughout the New Testament, he talks about the saving of our soul or the converting of our soul. What that is is what we do here at Trumpet Grace. We want you to understand who you are in truth, who you are in reality, So that will take over the image you have of yourself in your soul. Because we live through our heart. The Spirit moves through our heart, into our heart. 
if you think about your belly as the heart of you, okay? We always think of our heart as this blood pumping thing. The heart of us is the center of us. And where does the Holy Spirit come out of? Our center. He comes out of our belly, okay? So it's important that we get the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotion to see and believe the same thing that is real and true in the Spirit. When I began thinking about this oneness, the Lord reminded me of a dream I had. It was like a really cool dream. I was at my previous church, and I was walking down the aisle towards the altar. What I could see was that I was actually clothed with Jesus. I could see his arm over my arm. It was like it was glass over me. I could see his clothes over my clothes. I could see that he was like sort of carrying me along. <laughs> and I was like, this is so totally awesome. <laughs> and I get up to the altar, and then I split off, and he starts to minister. And he's filling people with the Holy Spirit, and people are getting healed, and I'm thinking, oh, what did I do wrong? I'm over to the side. What did I do wrong? <laughs> I was like, okay, Lord, you're talking about this dream because I'm not sure I get it. Part of this message is about how we see ourselves. So in that moment, how did I see myself? I saw myself separated. That's a problem. <laughs> All of this separation anxiety began in the Garden of Eden. I know you know the story, but I'm going to read part of it to you anyway. I'll just start at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Hast God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desiring to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covered. The great fall happened because they didn't see themselves the way God saw them. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, he goes through and makes everything. This is good. This is good. This is good. He makes man. This is very good. Okay? So how did Adam and Eve see themselves? They didn't see the truth of who they were in connection to God. So the serpent takes advantage of this and says, you're lacking something. There's something about you you don't have. Because if you ate of that tree, then you would have it. See, that's the lie he tells Christians today. You're lacking something. There's something you don't have. And if you just had that, you would be just like God. I like the way he says it in the King James. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. They were already as God on the earth. When I was studying for this message, I kept bumping up against this concept, as gods on the earth. 
that concept made me kind of nervous. <laughs> because how far do you go with that, Lord? <laughs> and the truth is, he wants us to go as far as we can with that idea, not going beyond the truth, however. So as I began to think about this oneness, that I am completely wall-to-wall filled with God, filled with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, same God who breathed everything into creation, spoke it all into being, breathed life into man, that's the same God that lives in me. So when I began to think about this and what he told me, we as believers, we underestimate just how one with him we are. If we are that much one with him, what would be impossible? Nothing. So it is a matter of how we see ourselves. When their eyes were open, we always think of that as a good thing, having our eyes open. (laughs) In this case, it wasn't. Because up until this time, they didn't know what evil was. They understood good. God said everything was good. But they didn't understand what evil was. And God didn't want them to know what evil was, experientially. He would have taught them later what evil was, so that they would understand, because we are like him. But he didn't want them to have to experience it. So what happened is when they ate of what they shouldn't have eaten, they became self-conscious. Now before that, they're running around the garden without any clothes on, (laughs) completely unaware that they have no clothes on, completely not caring. They didn't feel naked. They were completely unaware that they were naked. But when they ate of the tree, suddenly they felt unright. They felt unright. Does that sound familiar? What happens when we sin? How do we feel? Unright, just. <laughs> okay? The problem with them is they were. When they fell, they became unright, but not in God's eyes. Who knew they were naked. God always knew they were naked. God was not surprised by their nakedness. They became aware that they were naked. They felt their own unrighteousness. Where's God in the story? He hasn't showed up for his daily visit yet. (laughs) So in the garden, they had the life of God in them, but they understood distance. God wasn't physically present with them. They had an outside relationship with God. Now we think... Well, what Jesus said was he restored us to the garden. Oh, no, no, no. Well, we got it far better. Far better. Okay? (laughs) But Satan has the same tricks. He wants us to see ourselves, when we mess up, as unright. And the truth is, we do the same thing that they did. We try to cover it up. We try to hide it. When I make a mistake, when I sin, it's, oh, so sorry. (laughs) I get very dramatic. Oh, God, that was so dumb. Oh, what was I thinking? What am I doing? I'm putting leaves over me. I'm so dumb. I'm I'm so stupid. I'm lacking. I'm covering myself up with dramatics. (laughs) Now, I am sincere. I hate to sin because I do feel unright. And that affects my faith. Then that is the point. 
what I found was interesting is they weren't yet aware that God could see them when they felt unright. God hadn't showed up yet. But when he does show up, their leaves are insufficient. They don't go, here I am, God. I've got my leaves on. <laughs> no, they're like, where's the bush? My leaves are not sufficient. I need to hide from God. Why are they hiding? You see, this is their first experience with sin. They didn't know that sin would bring shame and guilt and condemnation and fear. Those are things they were totally unaccustomed to. They had never felt those things before. They feel fear. God is going to see my nakedness. Now, isn't it interesting that they thought God would be mad? We have no indication that God had ever been mad, <laughs> but that's what they expect. So many Christians, and God is still mad. A very, very wonderful minister who's been a minister for a bazillion years was one day teaching on this, and he said, God got so mad at them, he kicked them out of the garden and he refused to speak to them ever again. And I was like, what doesn't say that? <laughs> but where did he get that? It's amazing what you think the word says when you're looking through lenses that tell you God is an angry God. So, God comes to, to see them and he doesn't do any of those things, but they hide from him. We create separation in our mind when it's not even there. This was probably 30 years ago. I don't remember what the issue I was having with God was. That's how important it is. I don't even remember. But I refused to go into the sanctuary. I would take my family to church and Sunday school, and I would volunteer for a nursery every single week for six weeks. Now, I would go to church. I would talk to God the whole time I'm there. I would have my quiet time at home. But because I knew God wanted to deal with me about something, I avoided the sanctuary. <laughs> because you can't say no to God in the sanctuary. <laughs> After about six weeks of this, I'm standing outside the sanctuary, and God said, when are you going to realize that there's no difference between you and me in the sanctuary and you and me in the nation? When are you going to realize you're not really hiding? I still see you. <laughs> but you see, I had made barriers in my mind. I was hiding from God because I didn't want to face something. God wasn't buying it. <laughs> and he wasn't buying it here either. But we do that. We think things separate us from God. I thought if I went into the sanctuary, I would feel my nakedness. I would feel that unrightness with him. And I didn't want to. Even though I knew, even back then, it was a matter of just saying, okay, God, you're right. <laughs> Turns out you're always right. <laughs> That's all I had to do. But I, instead, I created this separateness in my head which kept me from enjoying his presence. That's all it did. A minister that I listen to every once in a while has a message. It's probably called something like God in the swivel chair. That's the point of his message. God in the swivel chair. You know what swivel chairs do, right? They turn around. And then they turn back the other way. And then they turn around. And then they turn back the other way. We think God's like that. 
Christians tend to think that when we're doing everything right in our own eyes, that God's face is towards us. But when we mess up, when we fall short, when we miss the opportunity to witness, when we didn't do that thing we, we knew we should have, God turns away. And then we have to go into our dramatics. <laughs> so that he'll be convinced to turn back towards us. Now that sounds really silly, doesn't it? But it's true. We tend to think of God this way, that his face is toward us when we're good, and his face is away from us if we're not so good. So we always think there's separation when there's never, never separation. God is not the God of a civil He's the God of the throne of grace and mercy. He only faces one way, towards us, towards us. It never faces away from us, not ever. But what Adam and Eve did this day is that they tried to meet their own need as they thought. They didn't really need anything. <laughs> they just didn't know what they had. Christians fall into that lie all the time. We don't know who we are and we don't know what we have, so we try to do it in our own strength. And that's exactly what he had them do. Christians also, those who do know grace, sometimes misunderstand grace. Because when we finally figure out that God's face is always towards us, that he is always for us, then we might get the misimpression that it's okay to sin. That God doesn't mind, it's already paid for. That doesn't work either. You see right here, consequences always follow. <laughs> you see, the consequence here was twofold. One was spiritual. They fell into darkness. When their eyes were opened, they were opened to the realm of darkness. Not to light, not to truth. They had been plugged into the very source of God as their life. And God is light. So when they unplugged themselves, which is what they did, what happened was inside their source of life ceased to come from God. That was the penalty. Death. God said, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. You will unplug yourself from life. And that's what they did. But there were the other consequences. <laughs> now you're cursed with a curse. And now you have to work by the spread of your brow. And you're going to have pain in childbirth. <laughs> None of it was good news. <laughs> Christians mistakenly sometimes think, well, there's no consequence. Whatever we sow, we will reap. The word tells us, Sin always comes along with corruption and destruction. It's a law. It's the law of sin and death. And it says if you enact the law of sin and death, which is what they did, death is what comes into your life. Now, they didn't physically die, did they? No. When we sin, we don't spiritually die. I was taught that years ago. That every time you sinned, you died spiritually, then you had to get reborn again. Again. <laughs> So you're always getting born again, 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 again. <laughs> but we have to understand, in us is the law of the spirit of life. Now we can draw on the spirit of life by faith, or we can enact the law of sin and death in our life. So if we look at our life and we say, ooh, sin and death, blech, that's not working out so well. <laughs> we can change it. We have the spirit of life in us. No, what God does is he helps them confess. I like this about God. <laughs> he helps them confess. Where are you, Adam? 
<laughs> I'm in the bushes. I'm afraid of you. <laughs> now, did God know? God knew. He wanted Adam to take stock of where he was at. Adam understand what he had done and that God wasn't mad at him. Sin is so deadly that only God has the ability to destroy the power of it. That's why, as believers, we don't live there. We stay away from that. It's too deadly. We're children of light and life. Death doesn't belong in our lives. He calls it course correction. If we get off course, we find ourselves with bad attitudes and being unkind and maybe snippy with our spouse. Those things so stuff into our lives. We need to stop that. Sin always has fruit. <laughs> you don't want to pick that fruit. That's why he says, what well, we do. God, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Now, am I already forgiven? Yes. Did he turn his face away? No. Is he mad at me? No. He wants to help me know why I did what I did. When I sin, it's because I don't know who I am and I don't know what I have. I don't know who I am to my Father, and I don't know who I am in Christ. Sin is just us trying to meet our own need, just like Adam and Eve. And we're just going to the wrong source. So he's always going to be correcting us to say, no, 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 sweetie pie, I'm your source. I'm life. One of the reasons he's not mad is because he already has a solution to this. In uh, verse 15, he speaks prophetically and says to the serpent, and I who put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the prophetic reference to the coming of Christ. To undo what they had done. To reverse the curse. To destroy the power of sin. Sin itself still exists. The principle of sin still exists. But its power has been destroyed in the life of a believer. It does not have the right to rule and reign in your life because you are children of light. So he, one of the reasons he wasn't mad is because before the foundations of the world, he knew. When was the Lamb of God slain? It says in Revelation, before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, he knew man would fall. Before God made anything, spoke anything into existence, he already had a plan to redeem us and save us from ourselves and from darkness. Then God has to give them some very bad news. They have to leave the garden. <laughs> it actually says he had to drive them out. That's how much they didn't want to leave. <laughs> okay? He wasn't mad at them and kicking them out of the garden. They so did not want to leave the garden that they had been accustomed to that he had to actually drive them out. Now, does he actually leave them then? Does he quit talking to them then? No. None of that religious garbage happened. Even when one son kills the other, God is still talking to them. He's still showing up and having conversations with them. He didn't remove his presence. He never removed his presence. And he never removed his presence from us. They didn't lose the presence of God. They didn't lose their fellowship with God. They didn't lose their protection from God. They didn't lose their provision from God. God still worked within those natural realms. And they became unplugged from God as their source of light. They died spiritually. What they did was irreversible. There was nothing they can do to undo what they did. I like that because the same is true for us. 
Once we accept Christ, there's nothing I can do to undo it. It's irreversible. He refuses to be separated from me. He refuses to be separated from me. Christ came not only to reverse the curse and to restore what was lost, but to make us like God. And even more than that, to be one with God, to be eternally and forever plugged in. In fact, he just took off the cord. There is no cord. There is nothing for him to plug into. We are one with him. And our heart is the switch that releases who he is and his power. There's no more plugs. You can't trip over it. (laughs) You can't get accidentally unplugged. You are so one with him. It is irreversible. He wants us to so think of ourselves as one with him that we don't know where we start and he ends. When I think of this picture, I think of I'm pink and God is blue because he's he's male. You take pink and blue and you pour them together in a pitcher. Pink water and blue water and you pour them together. You get what? Lavender? (laughs) Okay. Royal? Purple? That is the reality that he wants us to walk in. That we don't know. You ever have those thoughts? Is that me, God? Or is that you, God? It should be that way. But we should be so in tune and aware that we, we know. Yes. I am walking in God. I am in step. I hear you. I understand what you're telling me. We are so one that we don't have any idea of separation. No matter what happens in our life, that we are never separated. His face never turns away. This oneness is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. And that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Complete. That's what that means. Nothing lacking. (laughs) Nothing missing. Completely one with God. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. He says, I want this relationship to be so intimate, so personal, so constant, that people cannot tell the difference between us and Jesus. That's what he's talking about. We are perfectly one with him. And he's perfect. (laughs) When Jesus died on the cross, God placed all of humanity in Christ. Just like he had placed all of humanity in Adam. When Adam fell, all humanity fell. All humanity fell into darkness. When he placed all men into Christ, the heavens opened up. The light has come and is available to all men. He's already reconciled the world to himself. The world just needs to receive it. We need to understand what he's done for us and what he's made us. That we are so one with him that nothing Jesus did is impossible for us. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That word new means a new kind. Not like a new outfit <laughs> or a new hairdo. New as in never existing before. A completely different kind. We are so new and so different that the world had never seen this kind except in Christ. And it goes on and says this. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us this ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to tell the world they've already been reconciled, that he's not mad anymore. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, 
not imputing their trespasses unto them. What? Not imputing their trespasses unto them? What? <laughs> Is that really in there? Yeah. Not imputing our trespasses unto us and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God himself did beseech you by us or through us. We pray you in Christ that be reconciled to God. Why? Because he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the very righteousness of God himself. For faith to work, you have to be absolutely, positively sure you're righteous, no matter how you feel about it. Even if you feel unright, it's a lie. Your feelings lie. You are never unrighteous in the sight of God because you are wearing the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And not only are you wearing and clothed with it righteousness, you are righteousness. Because Jesus is righteousness. When thinking about this message this week, Paul's famous verse, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, just rang in my ears. I mean, I'm sure we're all very accustomed. I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live, yet not I, but Christ. Wait, is he schizophrenic? Who am I? Am I Jesus, or am I me? The answer is yes. Am I Jesus, or am I me? Yes. Now think about that. What would that look like in your life? If you really believed there was no difference between you and Jesus, that he's you and you're him, you are so one, you can't separate it at all. What could you do? Change the world. That's why this righteousness thing is so huge and important. Because righteousness says there's no separation, none. There's no difference. You're equal with Jesus. Now that almost sounds blasphemous. <laughs> Jesus was actually threatened to be stoned because he said, I and my Father are one. Isn't that what we say? And they said, you make yourself God. So all week I've been thinking, how do you walk all the way up next to that and not go, I am God? Because that's the implication. Wait, I'm so one with you that you say, I am you, and you are me, and I'm you, and okay, where's the line? <laughs> so, I'm righteous, I'm pure, and I'm holy. I am created in, the, in my, the image of my Father, but I have no power. See, he says, I want you to understand, you and me are so one, that when you are supposed to rule and reign on this earth as God, you're not supposed to be worshipped. <laughs> We're supposed to be ruling and reigning. The line, the demarcation is, I have no power in and of myself, even in my righteousness. I'm powerless to heal. I'm powerless to raise the dead. I'm powerless to cleanse the leper. I'm powerless to cast out demons, even if I'm righteous. That's why righteousness is so important. Righteousness is the perfect container for power. Righteousness is the perfect container for God's glory. Righteousness is the perfect container to express who God is. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. 
Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many works have I shewed you from the Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, we are God's? Now most Christians like to stay away from this scripture. <laughs> because people are like, um, because it's not the word God's. It's not possessive, as in we belong to God. We are God's. No, no. This is taken exactly from the Old Testament, where God is saying to the Israelites, we are God's. And the word there is Elohim. Now what is he saying? Is he saying that they are actually gods? No. <laughs> but you have to understand what he's trying to get across to them. On this earth, on this planet, you are supposed to rule and reign as Elohim. And he was scolding them in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 82. God actually scolds them for not taking care of the, the poor and the needy. Because he's a just and holy God. And he if he's ruling and reigning, takes care of the poor and the needy. So he says, are you not gods on this earth? He wanted them to so identify themselves with who he was that they saw themselves as he is. Does that sound familiar? As he is, so are we in this world? It was about ruling and reigning. Romans 5.17 says, For if by one man's offense... Adam, death reigned, much more they that received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. You know it doesn't say anything about faith in there? I thought that was interesting. I'm a word of faith girl. <laughs> I thought, that's really interesting, God, that you say we reign in life, we rule in life by grace, we know that, but it's based on this gift of righteousness that we are completely unseparatable from Jesus. And that if we understand how much we are one with him, as he is, so are we, we can speak to mountains. We can apprehend everything because there's no separation. Faith is seeing God's grace and saying yes. In his grace, he has provided righteousness as a free gift. And then he says, I'm going to use my grace and empower you. That's what grace is. It's the power to walk as Jesus walked, to do what Jesus did. He wasn't kidding when he said, go into all the world, make disciples, lay hands on the sick, they shall recover, cast out devils, speak with new tongues cleanse the leper, all of it. He said, you do it. Greater works, greater works. We will never do greater works if we think we're separatable. Because you know what happens? I come up to lay hands on somebody. Satan says, oh, you had a bad attitude this morning. Remember you rolled your eyes at your husband? What happens to my faith? It drains. Because I'm not looking at grace. I'm imagining separation. That's what Satan does to us. 
But we have to imagine, see with the eyes of our heart, nothing separates me. When my hand touches this baby girl, she's healed. Nothing lacking, nothing missing. No weapon will stand against her. She will overcome in every and any situation. What happens to your confidence? When you realize, I am the righteousness of God, and I am one with Jesus Christ ruler and reigner of all of creation who has conquered death, hell, and the grave and the power of sin. There is nothing that can stand against me and win. The only time we start backing away from the actuality of who and what we are is when we believe we're separated. That somehow what we did changed us. Never changes us. And it never changes God. So, my challenge for you this week is the same one that God gave me last week. Meditate this week. Use those the eyes of your heart to see yourself as one with Christ. That you can't figure out what part of you is you and what part of you is Jesus. You are as God on the earth. We are his ambassadors. But we also carry God and we're one with God. And nothing is impossible. God. What did Jesus say? For those who believe, nothing will be impossible. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, as daring and as bold as it is, to declare that you have made us, you have made us a new kind of creation. You have made us to look just exactly like you. And then you fill us with you. And you call us by your name. You call us little Christs, because we are. We are filled with the glory of our Father, the glory of God, the power of God. We are righteousness, and we can never lose our righteousness. We don't lose our right standing, no matter what. Separation is a lie. We never have to hide. We never have to be dramatic. We just enter into the truth and speak. I am the righteousness of God in Christ, and what I did was wrong, but that doesn't change my righteousness. My Father sees me exactly the same, and I walk away from that nonsense. That stuff is dumb. I choose not that stuff. It's death. When we see sin for what it is, we're not allured. It's not enticing. It's death in the pretty package. It's a lie. But you have so made us beautiful in your sight. You have made us accepted in the beloved. You have filled us with your very self so that the whole world will know your life. So that when we lay hands on the sick, they do recover. And when we pray for the dead, they do rise. And when we lay hands on the leper, they are cleansed. And when we lay a hand on the demon-possessed, they are free. That is the truth of who we are. That is what you say we are. Father God, open our eyes to the reality of who we are and whose we are. Let us not be deceived like Adam and Eve into thinking that we can meet our own needs or that we're lacking. You said you have already provided everything we need for life and godliness if we only will believe. It's there. And as we rest on you, rely on you, lean on you, your power flows out of us because you are not far away. You are one with us. 
And when we lean, you flow. When we decide to step out of self-effort, you show up and show off. You are God. And we thank you that you have made us sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name, amen.